Hi there, it's Matt here, and welcome back to the podcast. As some of you know, on this podcast, I have done a short mini-series on some of the basics of insomnia and some of the science that may underlie insomnia. But what I really wanted was for you to hear all about insomnia from a real clinician who is treating insomnia patients daily. For this, I reached out to my dear friend and a truly world-renowned sleep researcher and clinician, Dr. Michael Grandner. By the way, I know we hear that phrase, world-renowned and best, quote-unquote, so much these days. Trust me, there is no better definition of those two terms than Dr. Grandner, for whom if it's Okay, Michael, I'll probably just start calling you Michael hereafter. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Thank you. Also, by the way, upfront, if you want to follow a far better Twitter account than mine when it comes to sleep, you absolutely need to follow Michael. And you can find him on Twitter, and it's pretty simple. It's at Michael Grandner, and that's Michael, standard spelling. And then his last name, Grandner, which is spelled G-R-A-N-D-N-E-R, Michael Grandner. I will read every single post that he puts up. And I guarantee, I checked today, there is no one else in my Twitter account for whom there is more bookmarked tweets and website posts than Michael. He is hands down spectacular. So with all of that said, Michael, welcome, my good, good fellow. It is such an honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here. And first of all, it was a very, very kind introduction, but anyone who knows you knows that you are very kind. And the people listening may or may not know, you know we've actually known each other for a while, where I, I remember we first met when you were, I think you were still at Harvard and I was still in training, but... Isn't it amazing to see how far the sleep world has come from when just sort of shouting from the rooftops that sleep is important and sleep is great and fun and a joy and we should be thinking about it more, seeing how far we've come. And I love how you've been such a great voice for this. And it's been it's been great to see. So so thank you for all that you do. Thank you. I mean, it's been a learning experience and I've made lots of mistakes on the way, but you're absolutely right. It's stunning how ballistic the exponential curve of sleep knowledge has evolved, even over that past 10 years when you and I were just starting our main significant careers. And we talk about AI as having these step functions in growth. I often think that sleep is not far off. It's probably a close second, fair enough, relative to recent stuff. So as I mentioned, I've done several episodes on insomnia that folks can, if they want, go back and have a listen to. And I thought that we could start at the top with just some definitions, because when I'm out in public, so many people understandably get confused both about what insomnia is and what insomnia perhaps as importantly is not. Perhaps you could start with maybe even two items. First, what should we understand is the standard clinical definition of insomnia. And then if there is any different or more advanced or alternative definition approach that you take when considering applying a label of insomnia disorder, perhaps that one that is slightly modified or it more opens up the funnel to the acceptance 
of this notion called insomnia. Help me think about those two things. Sure. So I want to start with this idea of what is insomnia. And at its core, insomnia is a word. It's just a word. It's a word that means all kinds of things. And that's the problem, where we use that word to mean anything from, oh, I've got an early morning thing tomorrow and I'm all stressed about it, I have insomnia, versus I don't have enough time for sleep and I feel sleep deprived, I have insomnia, versus I can't fall asleep, versus maybe I fall asleep fine, but then I wake up in the night and can't get back to sleep. And so all those things to regular, normal, real people, that means insomnia. But as a scientist, we love splitting hairs. And the reason is, to, to give us a little bit of credit, it's because it makes sure we're always on the same page when we're talking about stuff so that we know what we're talking about, especially with a vague term like insomnia. So insomnia basically means you want to sleep, but you can't. Your ability to sleep is reduced. Now, that's different from sleep deprivation. There's a lot of overlap between insomnia and sleep deprivation. I'll get to the clinical side of insomnia in a minute, but to differentiate it from sleep deprivation, sleep deprivation is you're not getting enough, whether you can or not. A lot of people with sleep deprivation don't have insomnia. They could fall asleep whenever they want because they're so exhausted. They just can't because they have all kinds of things in the way. Sleep deprivation is when you're not getting enough, whether or not you have insomnia. That's an overlap issue. Remember, insomnia is separate from amount. Insomnia is ability. So there's people who have insomnia who get seven to eight hours. It's just that seven to eight hours is hard to get. When you think about insomnia as separate from sleep deprivation, think of, I'm trying to get to sleep, but my body or something is in the way. Usually we think of this as either difficulty getting to sleep when you begin your sleep period, which is usually at night, or maybe you fell asleep at some point, but then you wake up and you can't resume sleep. Sometimes the insomnia is in the beginning of the night. Sometimes it's in the middle of the night, and sometimes it's at the end of the night, or it could be any combination of them. And they all count as insomnia. And then again, that can overlap. You can have insomnia with insufficient sleep or sleep deprivation where you're not getting enough or without, but that doesn't depend on whether or not you have insomnia. So if you go to a doctor and you say, I think I have insomnia, they're not going to ask you how much sleep you get. That's actually not part of what insomnia is in a clinical sense. It's not about amount. It's about, can you fall asleep when you're trying to either in the beginning or the middle of the night? And I love that, Michael, that notion of trying to dislocate us from the belief that insomnia is all about how many hours did I clock? But I also love the term that you used a little bit earlier there, which was the notion of ability. The way that I often have thought about the difference between sleep deprivation and insomnia, and please correct me, is that when you are sleep deprived, you have a normal ability to sleep but you just don't give yourself the appropriate amount or you can't because of circumstance get the adequate opportunity time to sleep. So in other words, sleep deprived individuals, they don't have a problem innately generating sleep if only they were allowed enough time and appropriate time to get that sleep. I think that's correct. Though there are some people who have insomnia 
And due to the insomnia, they can be sleep deprived. So somebody who, say, dedicates eight hours to sleep and it takes them an hour to fall asleep during the night and they're spending two hours awake during the night and they wake up in the morning and they can't get back to sleep and they're starting their day an hour early, they're only getting five hours and change, even though they're dedicating the right amount of sleep. So I think your point about ability versus opportunity is really helpful for people to dis disentangle from each other. They're not the same thing. But it isn't always the case that if you have decreased ability, you might have opportunity. So as a clinician, that's sort of what we're sorting through. And that's actually why when people say, I tried to get eight hours, I'm only sleeping like five or six, but if I spend eight hours in bed, I'll sleep way better. But the truth is, people might not always have the ability right off the bat. So think of a Venn diagram where you have actually, and I got to give credit to Michael Perlis for this, who I also know that you know, who's also brilliant. But he came up with this Venn diagram that I keep in my head sometimes with patients, which is you have a need, opportunity, and ability. And when all three of those are in line, you're great. You're sleeping as much as you need. You have the ability to do it, and you have the opportunity. People with insufficient sleep may not have the opportunity or may not have the ability, but they still have the need or they may not have both. And when you have a patient and what we're trying to do is figure out, okay, do I need to work on their opportunity? And then it's about finding that time or do we need to actually work on their ability? And that's what treating insomnia is. It's not just, hey, make more time for sleep. It's actually trying boosting your actual ability to sleep with that opportunity. I love that difference between opportunity and ability and those th things not always being one in the very same well meaning that where you can have that venn diagram overlap they're not mutually exclusive coming back to what you were saying in terms of the clinical definition this notion of what we would classically think of as sleep onset insomnia where mm -hmm. you can't fall asleep versus sleep maintenance insomnia mm -hmm. i can maybe fall asleep but i can't stay asleep and then I know that there's a third component that I've had to really update my mental iOS because of all that you've helped teach me. It could be those two things. And again, those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can have both or one or the other. But there's also another aspect of insomnia, which is insomnia isn't just about the night. It's not just about your sleeping night time function. It's also about your waking daytime function. If anything, we could argue that insomnia is actually a daytime waking disorder. How should I think and how should people listening think about that third dimension of what insomnia is? So first of all, if, if a patient walks in the office and says, do I have a diagnosable insomnia disorder? I think of insomnia similar to like depression, where people can be depressed a little bit and that's okay. It's a normal reaction to certain life events. And sometimes it usually goes away on its own and we recover Sometimes it becomes persistent and a problem and we have to do something about it. Sometimes it gets to the point where it interferes with your functioning and it might be worth getting treatment. And then there's a time where you really cross a line and you have a clinical depression and you really need to see a professional. It's not something you could probably fix on your own. Insomnia is similar, where some people, well, they might have occasional sleep problems and those are fixable, but differently. And if they want to know, do I actually have a clinical insomnia where the sleep tips and this other stuff, it's just not going to be enough. I actually need a diagnosis and an actual treatment, which may or may not be with sleeping pills, but we're going to talk about that later. I, as a clinician, I'm trying to decide, does this person have a clinically relevant insomnia or not? 
So the diagnostic criteria, the bullet points I go through in my head is number one, do they have difficulty sleeping when they're trying to, either at the beginning of the night or in the middle of the night or at the end of the night? Usually the rule of thumb we use is 30 minutes. So if it's taking you at least 30 minutes to fall asleep when you're trying, or you're awake for at least 30 minutes of the night trying to get back to sleep and not being able to, or you're awake for 30 minutes before you wanted to get up and you're just not going to get back to sleep. So you're losing at least 30 minutes of sleep on the end, even if you're trying. That's usually the line where that gets crossed. So that's the first thing. But you mentioned the second, which is equally important from a diagnostic perspective, is that it has to cause daytime problems. Some people enjoy laying in bed and not sleeping. They're thinking or meditating or whatever. That's not a disorder. They don't have an ability to sleep. But if it's not impacting them in any negative way, there's nothing disordered. There's nothing really wrong. So as long as they're getting the sleep that their body needs to function fine, if it ain't broke, don't fix it situation. So daytime problems are required, though they could be almost anything because sleep is connected to so many different aspects of functioning. It could be, you know, your body is fine, but mentally you're not, it's affecting you. Or maybe physically and mentally you're okay, but socially it's a problem for you and stressful. Or maybe it is causing you physical discomfort. There's all kinds of things that the daytime complaints can be, could be physical, mental, emotional, social, environmental, but it's got to be causing some problems. And by the way, the other criteria we're looking for is number one, hasn't been going on for at least three months. And that's the definition of chronic. If it's been less than three months, it still can be clinically relevant, just we treated it a little differently. And then also how many nights a week is this actually a problem? So most people are surprised to know that if you have insomnia, you don't have insomnia every night. You've talked about sleep is a lot like hunger, where even if you have problems with appetite, you can go a couple days not eating much because food just all tastes gross to you or something. But after a while, you're going to be hungry enough that you're going to temporarily just eat whatever's in front of you if, if you get hungry enough. And it's the same with sleep, where people with insomnia can have insomnia three nights a week, and that's all that it needs to cross that line. It doesn't even need to be the majority of the time, just three nights a week. So if you're having difficulty sleeping at least three nights a week, it's gone on for at least three months, and it's causing that daytime complaint, I mean, and if it's not due to some other obvious cause, I mean, you're also drinking caffeine as soon as you're going to bed. Well, that's not insomnia. That's a sleep hygiene issue. But assuming it's not that, that's where we would give someone that insomnia diagnosis. It's got to impact their night and their day. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker, which is a service that comes out to your home and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is going on inside of you. Hence the name Inside Tracker. They look at your blood, your metabolic signals, your hormonal health metrics, and then they give you a personalized, actionable set of lifestyle changes in response to that readout. And the goal there is to improve your health. I was looking and informed they have some new cardiovascular and new hormonal biomarkers that I'm particularly interested in. One that I'm focused on is something called ApoB, which is an absolutely critical heart health measure. 
And I get it done now with them somewhere between four to six times a year. Why? Well, my family, unfortunately, has a strong history of cardiovascular disease. So I am checking that pretty ruthlessly. And by the way, I do buy the product myself out of pocket. I don't want to fall prey to any of those trappings and undue incentives. Although with full admission, I still use my own discount code that you can use to get some money off. And that code for you is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. So just go over to insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. And again, if you want to get that discount, it is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. Thanks very much. And so that would be what we typically hear of in the sleep world. And I've heard you beautifully describe it as it's not really a clinical rule. It's more of a rule of thumb, which is this notion of a 33-3 rule, which is if you're struggling to fall asleep and it's taking you more than 30 minutes or you wake up, it takes you more than 30 minutes to get back to sleep. And it's happening for at least three nights of the week. And it has been going on for at least three months, that 33-3 that's when you would move towards more of a thought of what we call chronic insomnia disorder. But what I love about your preface there was that that doesn't mean that I as a clinician will then leave anyone out who is not under that strict definition and say, I'm sorry, you don't meet the criteria. I'm not going to treat you. You were saying, no, it could still be a short-term thing and we will treat it. We may just treat it differently and we can come on to that. But that's the reason I sort of used that word almost compassionate in your slightly different definition. Because when I heard that, I just thought, oh, there is a brilliant clinician, someone who understands that we've got these great rubrics, which are fantastic clinically and very important when we're designing studies and trials. That could be the argued diagnostic ideal world, but it turns out none of us live in the ideal world. We all live in this thing called the real world, and there is a more short-term version that you can treat. So I think it's so important, and maybe we'll get to how we approach those different treatments. The other thing I wanted to just circle back around on, because I think it's a very important point, what is disordered and what is not disordered? And you really emphasize something there to say, if you are sleeping, perhaps six hours or less, and you're awake for a fair amount of time during the night, but it's not stressing you. You enjoy it. As you said, you meditate, you think, you just be, you just rest, and you're not impaired the next day. Then we will reconsider that in our term of insomnia. But you also mentioned something else, which is, and I suppose it's the reason I'm always thoughtful of not applying that 100% as you don't either. I think people like me have done a terrible job at scaremongering folks into this idea that, you know, there's this eight hour myth. And if you're not getting it, you've only got days left to live. And what you described there is, yes, you can have a perception that I'm not doing well. My social functioning, my emotional functioning, or my mental functioning is not good. And so you know it. Or people can say, no, my brain is fine. I don't have any of those problems. You also then made the elegant point in the brain, but also in the body. And for example, if someone was struggling with high blood sugar and they were on a path towards type two diabetes, or they have consistent immune problems, or they have cardiovascular disease and hypertension, then if you see that in their chart and they're saying, no, I'm just fine with my mind, you may say, that's great, 
But maybe we want to just check to see if this sleep that you're getting is a contributing factor to these other things. Is that how I should think about it too? I think that's exactly right. And, and I'm glad you caught that. I did drop that in there on purpose because some of the daytime issues aren't aren't even always things we're acutely aware of. Also, it's just, again, it's this complicated issue of insomnia versus sleep deprivation. So if you have someone who's laying in bed for nine hours, sleeping seven, they're getting a sufficient amount of sleep and it's taking them a long time to get it, but they feel fine and they're totally happy, they would have neither insufficient sleep nor insomnia disorder. Whereas if you had someone who is sleeping five to six hours, spending a bunch of time in bed, to them it feels relatively pleasant. It's not really bothering them. They don't really feel like it's impacting them during the day. They may or may not have insomnia disorder, but they would probably have insufficient sleep. That itself might be worth fixing independent of the insomnia. And that's where I think a lot of patients, I think you rightly point this out, a lot of patients sort of get confused here where they're like, well, I'm sleeping five or six hours and I'm having physical symptoms from it. That by itself is the definition of insomnia, where it's actually that sleep deprivation and insufficient sleep with or without insomnia. I know it's, it's sort of like this frustrating academic hair splitting for people because they're like, need more sleep, sleep bad, need sleep more, turn the sleep up, whatever that is. But, I'm, but what I'm trying to say is there's actually two dimensions here. Think of it like nutrition. If you're not consuming enough calories for your body to function and process energy and to feed your cells, eat all the kale you want. If it's not enough to feed your body, it's not a healthy diet. However, if you're eating sufficient calories, well, then you can start looking at the nutrition. Okay, well, I'm eating enough calories to power my body energy-wise, but am I giving it the right nutrition for optimal functioning? And that might be a good way to think of, you know me, you know, I love these food analogies. Oh, you're genius. You're so brilliant with analogies. So some people might have a poor diet because they're nutritionally deficient and they're not eating enough, getting enough energy, but maybe they're getting enough energy and it's nutritionally deficient, or maybe they're eating healthy food. It's just not enough. So for a lot of people, I think maybe the quality of sleep they get is actually quite good, especially a lot of sleep deprived people. They sleep great the little bit they get because they're so tired and exhausted. They're so starved. When they give themselves some sleep, they sleep super deeply because of it, but they don't give themselves enough time. So even if that quality of sleep is great, it's still not enough. And that's what we sort of sort through as a clinician. And I'll tell you that clinically, and we'll talk about this in terms of treatments, we're much better at improving the insomnia piece, that control, that ability and we're not as good at increasing amount. Even if patients come in saying, I want more of an amount, a lot of times clinically, the first thing we focus on is, well, I can't give you more of an amount if you can't use what I give you, if you don't have the ability to fill the time you already have. Let's work on that first. I think it's actually a really important point, which is this mistaken belief, understandably, that when patients say, gosh, I just had a really, another tough night of insomnia last night. I got maybe four and a half hours of sleep last night. Tonight, I'm going to try and get to bed and be in bed for at least 10 or 12 hours. And we'll discuss why that is actually quite the wrong way to approach it. But I made a faux pas where we didn't really step back and think about the global societal prevalence 
someone like you, I don't know how you have the research output and the ability to do everything that you do within the time that you do. I'm fairly sure that you've been cloned maybe at least three to four times based on my MATLAB calculations. But one of the reasons I'm stunned by that is when you think about your clinic at the University of Arizona, by the way, I should have mentioned that ahead of time, and we'll link to all of his wonderful websites in the show notes. But insomnia is not a trivial problem, meaning it's not an incredibly rare condition, not that rare conditions don't deserve medical treatment, every condition does. But when we think about the gravitas, the impact of insomnia, relative to how society approaches how important it is to treat insomnia. I've always thought of it as a mismatch that there is just this healthcare neglect. And by the way, there's many people in healthcare who I think are wonderful and fantastic. But I also sometimes think that we still don't have enough appropriate services to meet the prevalence. So tell me a little bit more about how common is this thing called insomnia? And is it a significant public health issue or should people just stop listening right now because it's not really a big issue (laughs) yeah everyone go home if you ask a random sample of the population that is representative that matches the census and i say this because the cdc has done this many times actually and they give the data away for free and as you said I, i published out of it and anyone can go online by the way and download the data themselves from nhanes or brfss or any of these national databases this is a national treasure that we invest in this. But anyway, if you went to the U.S. population, had a census-matched sample of thousands of people, you would probably find that about one in three has some sort of insomnia symptoms, like of difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep or waking up too early. And that about a third has been pretty constant since people have started looking back in like the 80s. It seems to be about the same margin of error is a little wide because how you ask the question might change from year to year. You might get slightly different numbers, but it seems to be about one in three people. If you ask them, they're having some some issues, but they may not meet criteria for an actual diagnosis. That seems to be about one in 10, which is a lot. If you think about just how many people are in a busy area and you're just walking to work or you're on the bus or on the train or just in a car. 10 people passing you by, one of those people will have insomnia. Yeah. And if you follow those people over time, you will find, because again, this has been done. Everything I'm saying is something that's not just one person found in one study somewhere. This is replicated findings that are not surprising anybody anymore. But untreated insomnia seems to increase the risk. And again, the amount of increased risk depends on the study and and whatever, But you're talking about something that impacts everything from health. Diabetes risk is elevated insomnia. It seems to have more of a diabetes effect than a blood pressure risk versus sleep deprivation, which we'll talk about in a sec. Inflammation, stress, and actually insomnia is one of the, if not the most powerful predictor of new or recurring onset of a mental health condition like a depression disorder or an anxiety disorder. Michael, can you just say that again? Because it's so important. I just want people to hear it twice. (laughs) Yes. So first, I'm going to just restate. Insomnia is probably one of, if not the most reliable predictor 
of a diagnosable mental health condition, like a depression disorder or an anxiety disorder, especially. This is well known. I think you can very much argue with my dilettante claims that there is or was a global sleep loss epidemic. But I think it's very clear that we have a mental health epidemic in most industrialized nations. That statement that you've just made in that context is stunning for just people to like pause and appreciate that impact. If there's a correlation in all of medicine that's more reliable than the correlation between insomnia and mood problems, depression and anxiety-like problems, I will be surprised. You know this, and I know you know this, but like your listeners might not realize just how much this is water is wet science. Like that sleep, especially insomnia and depression, they're so intricately linked. And it's not just that, well, of course, when you're depressed, you don't sleep as much. Well, it does go both ways. And the data show that it does go both ways, but it actually goes more in the other way For example, insomnia triples likelihood of suicide, not just ideation, but actual completion and death by suicide. I'm not going to get on the soapbox because you know this is something I care a lot about, but like if suicide were an infectious disease, we'd be all over looking for a cure. We'd be mobilizing. It is the second leading cause of death in every age group from 10 to 34, and it stays in the top five up until I think age 55. It's just such a huge problem. And actually, changes in insomnia predict changes in suicide risk, sometimes even better than changes in depression do. This is a big deal that I think more people need to be talking about as a motivating factor. Sleep for your health, but also sleep for your longevity, sleep for your quality of life, but also sleep for your mental health. It's so easy to make that case. I mean, there's places where the data are a little murky. The data are crystal clear for insomnia and mental health. And I think in some ways... The deck is doubly stacked, that it's almost double jeopardy where you're getting punished twice for the same offense in the context of mental health, I think still remains stigmatized. It's getting much better in society, but it's still devalued and I think stigmatized. And sleep has an image problem that we often associate getting sufficient sleep with being lazy or slothful. People are very proud to tell you about how healthy they are in terms of their eating, but less proud to tell you about how they consistently get eight and a half hours of sleep. As we transition from this topic, I think it's a perfect segue into coming on to mechanisms. And in some ways, this already starts to get down into the mechanisms. I've spoken a little bit before on on the series on insomnia about what we think are the main multiple underlying causes of this thing called insomnia. How do you think about what are the common causes of insomnia both physical or physiologically and psychologically? And how do you see those play out? How should I think about the weighted balance, the ratio between those two? Help me understand Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) One way to think about this is that there's really two things you need to look at when you're talking about causes for insomnia. Think of insomnia as a ball rolling down a hill. There's two forces at play. One is the force that pushed the ball and may continue to be pushing the ball as it rolls down the hill or kicking it or whatever. The other force is gravity. Let's say there's one kick and then the ball starts rolling. At that point, the cause of the ball rolling becomes irrelevant. Whether it was a kick or a push or a nudge, it sort of doesn't matter anymore. It's picked up speed. It's going on its own. Now what you need to go against is gravity. The original cause was irrelevant. 
And so that's how I want you to think about insomnia, where insomnia has causes in the short term. So what are the causes of short-term insomnia? The thing that causes you to lose sleep to begin with, but then the causes of chronic insomnia, once it keeps going, what keeps it going, those are two very different things. So there's a million causes of short-term or acute insomnia. That could be anything. I mean, it could be anything can cause you to lose sleep. Anything that increases activation in your mind or your body could be good. Could be you're super excited about something. It could be bad. It could be super angry or mad or sad about something. It could be physical. It could be pain. It could be headaches. It could be leg pain, back pain. You could be sick. It could be environmental. It could be noise. Maybe you have another sleep disorder like sleep apnea, which by the way is also shockingly common. It's so common. It could be there without you even knowing it. You're trying to sleep. Your body keeps waking itself up to breathe. There's a million things that could cause you to lose sleep in the short term. And actually, as a clinician, sometimes it's really useful to figure out what those are, but it's only really useful if those things are still there. So like if it's pain and you're still in pain, okay, if it's stress and you're still struggling with stress and we can work on relaxation, but often it was a kick, you know, someone lost a family member or, or something that was a one-time event but it just sort of stuck. Like for a lot of people, a great thing that happens in people's lives that could cause insomnia is they have a new baby. It's a great thing, but a lot of times it causes lack of sleep for very good reasons. That might cause the initial lack of sleep, but then I'll get parents coming in being like, well, they're sleeping through the night, but I'm not. What happened? And so that's when you get into the phase two, the second phase, the long-term sort of issues. If there's a million causes for short-term insomnia, an unlimited number of causes for short-term insomnia, there's really only one cause of chronic insomnia. And that's lucky because that's the thing we mostly work on in clinic. It's what's called conditioned arousal. Let me know if you want me to break that down for people. With yeah, I think so. Because often when people in the general public, they hear this term arousal, they typically think, as I would, oh, you're speaking about the bedroom and you're speaking about arousal. And at that point, people lean over to me at dinner and say, Matt, could you just keep your bedroom chit-chat to yourself, please? That's enough of that. But when we say arousal in science and medicine, we actually mean a state of strong physiological activation. And also that can then lead to a strong sense of mental arousal, which is strong mind activation and mind broadly defined. So maybe just say a little bit about what that arousal is, both physiologically and mentally, and, and then we can come back. Sure. Think of arousal as activation. You can have mental activation, physical activation, or both. Pain causes physical activation. So does excitement. So does healing. So does all kinds of things can cause stress, tension, holding tension in your muscles. That causes physical activation. Mental activation could be excitement, anticipation, fear, stress, worry, rumination. All these things cause gears to turn. Gears turning creates movement, creates energy. Think of it that way. Think of that activation as adding energy into the system. And often that's good. It mobilizes us. The reason why pain creates activation is if you're in pain, you should be activated and get moving and get help. Our ancestors who didn't feel pain die. It exists for a reason. The activation exists for a reason. But when you're laying in bed trying to sleep, it's not helpful. That activation is adding energy 
into a system where decreasing energy is going to get you where you want and adding energy is actually going to get in the way. And anything can cause arousal. Again, we're talking about arousal from a technical sense, scientific and medical sense of arousal, just meaning activation where there's volume, there's activity going on. It's like the little light on the computer is blinking. The little wheel on the computer is spinning. Something's happening here is activation. Now the conditioned part, this is where it's a little different. This doesn't start out this way, but it ends up this way. And what I mean is something causes you to lose sleep when you have short-term insomnia. And if I remember correctly, it looks like about 4 to 5% of the population every month has something that causes at least short-term insomnia. It's very common. One in 20 people will have some new event. But about something like 85% of those will resolve. Something was stressful for a couple of days, it went away. But some of them stay. The reason they seem to stay is that when you lose something, where do you go looking for it? Do you go looking for it in the last place you found it? This is another Michael Perlis analogy. Like if you lose your keys, where do you go looking for them? The last place you had them. Well, where was the last place you had your sleep? That was in bed. And so a lot of times when people have a short-term insomnia, what they do is they spend lots of extra time in bed hoping to find that lost sleep in there. But because of that activation in their mind and in their body, it's not coming. It's not going to come. Just spending more time in sleep is increasing opportunity. There's no change in their need, but their ability is decreased. And so now what you have is you have a dramatic mismatch between opportunity and ability where they're trying to sleep and they can't. So they try harder and nobody got to sleep faster by trying harder. To give credit to another friend's analogy, so this one's from Lindsay Shaw, who's a sports physiologist who got into sleep. She's amazing. And when she talks to athletes, I learned this from her, and I always credit her with this because it's brilliant. And she said, sleep isn't something you do. Sleep is something that happens to you when the situation allows for it. And the situation can be the time of day, what the environment is, what's happening in your mind, what's happening in your body. And with athletes, sometimes it's the right time of day. You know, you're in the bedclothes, you're in bed, you're under the covers, everything's right, the light is low, but you've got a competition the next day or you just competed and the situation is not going to allow for it. Yeah, and I almost sometimes think of it as a little bit like trying to remember someone's name. The harder that you try to remember someone's name, the further you push it away. And then as soon as you stop trying several days later or 15 minutes later, it just emerges. And sleep could be a little bit like that sometimes. No one, you're right, has simply willed themselves to sleep when they were not able to. The other supporter of this podcast is the electrolyte drink company called Element. Now, it's actually four letters, L-M-N-T. I am a bit of an exercise fanatic, and I started buying their products some years ago, really, because of two key facts. First is the lack of sugar content. Element has no sugar. It also has no colorings, no artificial ingredients, which is unlike many of the other mixes out there that I was shopping. The second is because of the founders who have some serious years of biochemistry experience under their belts, and they know what they're doing. So if you want to give it a try, just go to drink lmnt.com forward slash Matt Walker and you will get eight free sample packs on any order that you place. Once again, that is drink 
lmnt.com forward slash Matt Walker. Okay, so you're in bed, you have this activation. Imagine you're bringing this activation in bed, you're spending extra time in bed temporarily. The activation's gonna fade over time. But now you currently have this mismatch between opportunity and ability, where you're spending a lot of time struggling. You're actually spending a lot of effort and time sleeping, trying to sleep. And then what happens is a learning occurs where sleep becomes predictably stressful. Brains look for patterns. They're looking for patterns. And so what we do is we start feeding it the pattern of getting into bed, trying to fall asleep is hard, stressful, defeating, negative. The bed becomes the dentist chair, whether we want it to or not. We don't try to make it that way. We inadvertently teach ourselves that sleep is a predictably stressful endeavor. And the conditioned arousal comes in. Once we've taught ourselves and once we've successfully learned that the act of trying to sleep is going to be stressful, we recognize that pattern and we start anticipating it. And just getting into bed will trigger that stress response. Like I said, the bed becomes the dentist chair. I mean, you're in the waiting room in the dentist's office, you're already a little sort of amped up. You're avoiding making the phone call to make the appointment because there's stress involved. And that's what happens with the bed. The bed becomes the war zone. It becomes all this uncomfortable stuff. Once getting into bed, trying to fall asleep becomes predictably stressful. That predictable stress is the gravity. That's what's keeping things going. And people with insomnia, I'm sure, will recognize this feeling that as bedtime is starting to approach, they can start to develop that uneasy feeling. And by the way, this notion of conditioning, probably most people are familiar neuroscientifically in the sense of Pavlov's dogs that you ring a bell, you show some food and the dog salivates, you do that a few times. And then all you need to do is ring the bell. You don't have to show the food, but they're so conditioned to the connection between those two things that they get the same reaction now with just the bell alone. And here, the idea is that every time I approach my bedroom, which is the bell, what happens is that I always, and it's a negative outcome, not a positive one where you get the food, I'm always struggling to fall asleep. I fight this battle at that point. I've lost all faith in my sleep. I've stopped having the ability to control my sleep. Now my sleep controls me. And at that point, you lose all confidence. So in other words, you've been ringing the bell of the bedroom and it's been paired with the association of the bad outcome, which is I can never sleep there. So even before you are trying to sleep, you're almost bell rung into being convinced. And part of that bell ringing that we see in the brain and the body is this thing that we call physiological and mental arousal. You're being activated even before you try to get into the event. And then little wonder, it only makes matters worse. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly, exactly. And the activation wasn't even anything you did. It was a learned response. Your body created it outside of your own awareness, usually. Then you're like, well, I tried relaxing. The telltale sign, I'll tell you, when someone comes in the clinic and they say this, this is like the most obvious example that this has occurred. They say, oh, I'm exhausted during the day. I have trouble even keeping my eyes open sometimes. But then as soon as I start getting ready for bed, I feel like I start waking up. And then as soon as I get into bed, like I'm exhausted and I'm tired, but it's just like my mind turns on. I just can't shut my mind off. So I think that that notion of conditioned arousal, it is such 
an impactful component of insomnia that people, if they want to rewind a little bit and go back over it, it is such a critical part to understand about what is keeping you in this trap, in this incarceration of insomnia. And we'll speak about what Michael typically does to help people get out of that incarceration. But you also mentioned just a little bit earlier, and if you could touch on them again, maybe the other things that people may not be aware of that are causing them either bad sleep or even this idea that they starting to go into the down the slippery slope of insomnia. We've spoken a lot about adequate opportunity time to sleep, adequate ability to generate sleep. But you also mentioned some of the environmental factors that are really good to say, do I have all of these things box checked that they're not occurring such that I can then continue on to think, okay, maybe it's none of those other things. How should people think in terms of a list of box checked things that you would say, okay, as I'm doing my intake with a patient, I'm just going to make sure, are you doing this? So things that you do that you probably want to stop doing and things that you are not doing that you probably want to start doing. Help me understand those. I think about these in three buckets. The first bucket is physical. Is there activation in the body that needs to either be quieted or allowed to pass before sleep opportunity is present? So one example is pain. So pain could create a physical sensation or tension. So maybe either waiting till the pain passes, or maybe there's some physical exercises or breathing or other things you can do to help manage that. Another aspect of the physical domain is what you're eating and drinking. I mean, if you're eating some sort of big, heavy food before bed, or you're drinking something, or you had something that had too much sugar at the wrong time, or maybe you're trying to take a supplement at night, it might be good for recovery, but it might have something in it that's activating you. So like, for example, some workout supplements might have some amino acids like glutamine that could, if you take too much of it, it actually can interfere with sleep instead of help. Or if, if you had caffeine, but maybe it was a few hours ago, but maybe it was too close to bedtime. As you know, some people, they can do fine with a little bit of caffeine a few hours before bed, but some people, they can't have it after the morning if they're going to be able to sleep well that night. So is there something you took into your body? Is there something that is in your inside your body from an activation standpoint that needs to be either quelled or, look, if you just took a stimulant, there's nothing you can do. You have to wait for that to pass. Sleep is, you know, you just shot yourself with adrenaline. You're not going to fall back asleep. So giving yourself stimulating medication in the evening, like caffeine, is going to be problematic. On that note, tell me if this feels good to talk about or not. When you are doing an intake and patients, you'll say, maybe what medications are you taking? Broad brushstrokes. Are there any candidates for top two, three medication candidates that when you hear about them, your response is not just, are you taking them or are you not? Do you have any thoughts about those that you know to be a little bit sensitive to sleep or will impact sleep that you would think about recommending or asking, what time of day do you take them on the basis of when they take them could be helpful or harmful to sleep? That's an excellent question. I'll never forget the patient who had more than 10 years of insomnia, and I was the seventh provider that he saw for it, the first sleep person. And I noticed that he was taking Wellbutrin twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, like his doctor had told about 12 hours apart. And I said, how about ask your doctor if you could take it after lunch instead of after dinner? 
And he was like, well, that can't be it because you know, I've had this problem for so long. It even maybe predated the medication. Someone would have caught that. And it turns out that was it. That was all he needed. Well, Buterone, for those people, it's a brand name for a generic drug, which is typically used as an antidepressant. Yep. Bupropion is the generic. It's also used for smoking cessation. It's very similar to Chantix, which is very similar. It's used for smoking cessation. So there's a number of antidepressants that can have activating components, like anything that's impacting on dopamine. So Wellbutrin, so Bupropion impacts on dopamine. And I know you've talked about this a bit before about the role of dopamine in wake regulation. And if you're taking it in the evening, it's more likely to cause insomnia. Prozac is known to cause activation in the evening and, and can make sleep difficult. Certain antibiotics, if people are taking them regularly, can sometimes cause that in the evening. I always ask what medications people are taking, but I also always ask what time they take them to see what they're taking at night. Because there's also some that like, well, they don't always interfere with sleep, but sometimes they do. So buspirone, also known as Boostbar for anxiety, sometimes can cause insomnia. Pretty much any medication can have headache or GI symptoms. Sometimes those translate into insomnia because of an indirect physiologic activation. It's not so much that it's disrupting sleep-wake regulation like dopamine more directly, but this is because it's upsetting your body a little bit and that's keeping people up. Like lisinopril for high blood pressure, when people start taking it, it causes a cough. The cough eventually goes away, but it's better usually to take blood pressure medication at night. But Sometimes that cough can keep people up. Also, beta blockers, also for blood pressure, suppress melatonin production. So sometimes that could be interfering. I think you make a good point. And I don't just ask about medications. I ask about other substances that we know interfere with sleep, caffeine. I ask when you're using it, what you're using and how much. And I also ask for reasons. A lot of people use alcohol to help with insomnia or they've tried it. And it's probably the most used sleep drug in the world, to be honest. But it would surprise nobody to know that alcohol makes you fall asleep a little faster. But a lot of people don't realize that it makes your sleep worse and shallower, the sleep you are getting. And you tend to wake up more and spend less time sleeping. So I ask about that. I also ask about tobacco because a lot of people smoke to relax. But nicotine is a stimulant. So this is another one. When people smoke, I ask what time was the last cigarette they had. A lot of times clinicians will ask, when was your first cigarette to look at addiction behavior? But I ask about last, what are they smoking in the evening? Because that directly interferes with their ability to sleep. I ask about cannabis and THC and CBD, and I know we're probably going to talk about that a little more later, but those can disrupt sleep as well. And I ask about melatonin and I ask about other supplements because it's all stuff. And sleep is connected to so many different systems I like getting a global picture of what people are doing so that if there's a sleep interfering pathway being activated that they didn't even realize or the prescribing clinician didn't even think about or Google didn't turn up, I'd feel pretty dumb if I knew about it and didn't catch it. Yeah, I completely agree. I just mentioned that because a lot of people are unaware that their medications People think, oh, I just take my medications and I take them, which is a smart move. At the standard time of day, I take all of my medications just because it keeps me higher probability of compliance and adherence, which is wonderful. But sometimes people don't know that 
it's not just the dose that can make the sleep denting contribution and the type of drug, but it can also be the timing. But for now, I will simply say goodbye. Thank you again for joining, and I'll see you next time.